house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Remember that new client of mine? Well, it turns out she is Albert's ex-wife. Stop seeing her, please. I don't have anybody I can bitch to. You can completely bitch to me. It was very clumsy in bed. Oh, my hair, my hair. He'd go on so many diets, and then he would cheat. And he has no friends. I have lost all perspective. I've been listening to this woman say the worst things about the guy that I'm starting to really like. She's like a human trip advisor. Albert is not a hotel. If you could avoid staying at a bad one, wouldn't you? Oh, my God. Hello, and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's sweating out a lifetime's worth of booze with Jacinda Barrett's husband. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File, lugging up that podcast equipment up the stairs like so much massage tables. <laughs> uh, indeed. I am the proverbial massage table being hauled up the stairs today. It's a little bit of a, a, a rough morning for me, so good morning. Uh, almost as bad as if you just sent your only daughter off to college. I know. <laughs> Sad. And not to spend that, like, airport time with your ex-husband. Who, I'm pretty sure that was a stealth Seinfeld reunion. I meant to look that up before we started. But I think um, Toby Huss, okay. who plays her husband in this movie, played um, one of Elaine's boyfriends on Seinfeld, like, one time. And I believe he was the one whose thing was, like, he was the whiz from Nobody Beats the Whiz. Hold on a second. Now I have to look this up. Hmm. Because now I, have I should to also right. say, Joe, happy Oscar ceremony. Yeah. We are recording this far enough in advance that, like, obviously we don't know anything about the Oscar ceremony, but we are now toes deep in a new Oscar <laughs> year now that this year's Oscar ceremony is complete. I don't like week. that our listeners know more about whether Parasite won Best Picture than we do. I still think it's going to happen. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Anyway, we have a guest also, speaking of, I don't want to go too long without introducing our guest, because also we have cats chit chat to go through and I don't want to wait too long to give our audience what they really want out of this podcast, which is cats by the bagful. So, and I'm also <laughs> going to be guessing there was not enough cats content on the Oscar telecast. Oh, unless they so, like, opened it with fucking skimble shanks, then there was not enough content, uh, cats content on the Oscars. So, yeah. Um, but let's welcome our guest. Uh, we are very, very happy to have him. Friend of the podcast, friend to all, uh, editor at the Body Culture. Uh, uh, sorry. He's editor at The Body, and he is culture writer for Primetimer and Teen Vogue, among many other places that he's written for throughout the years. Matthew Rodriguez, welcome to This Head Oscar Buzz. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my god, I'm so excited to talk about Matthew, Cats. Matthew, we're so happy to have you here. Okay. Thank you. So we're going to jump into Cats, because before we got on mic, Matthew was telling us about the rowdy cat screening he attended last night in Brooklyn, New York, of all places. I can't believe they did a quirky entertainment thing in Brooklyn. What the hell's going on? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you were saying, Matthew, that there was that it was overall good, but there was some performative heterosexual energy happening? 
Yeah, so there was just, like, one dude there who really, you know, like, misunderstood the assignment because everyone there was really there to celebrate cats and and love it. And he was there to give just, like, really biting, sarcastic, like, bad comedy podcast controversy. It felt like he was, like, honing his type five stand-up set. And... At the, at was, the behest or uh, at the expense of Francesca Hayward, our, yeah, yeah. our new goddess. Just, he was just coming for everyone on screen. And it was like, dude, we're all here to enjoy this movie. Everyone here right. loves it. And he just brought a really bad energy into the room. And it kind of reminded me of that episode of Community where everyone where they're all watching Kick Puncher and laughing and like. <laughs> And Pierce feels left out, so he like writes jokes in advance yeah. <laughs> and says them to the screen. Like right. that's what it felt like because he knew exactly when the music would go down and exactly when he could make this exact comment to get a laugh. And it was like so pre-rehearsed and un- inauthentic. So this was my problem with the cats screening that I went to last week, where it was not a prescribed rowdy screening. So a this was my first screening of cats, and I wanted to just sort of like bask in the catsness of it all. You know what I mean? It's not like I don't take cats deathly serious. It's still cats, but like I want to enjoy the movie on its own terms, right? I want to I want to meet the movie on its level first. And right. we had this group behind us. We're in first of all, we're like right by Union Square. So like right in the heart of like NYU awfulness, right? And so there's this group behind us who all showed up ready to sort of, like, ready to laugh. And initially, my friend uh, Adam and I were like, oh, this will be good. Everybody's here. We're in a good mood. We're all, like, laughing funny. But you could tell once the movie started going that, like, they had read all the trend pieces about how, like, people are, like, laughing at cats and, like, you know, engaging with cats. And they'd seen all the tweets from people just sort of, like, laughing, like, clapping along to Mr. Mistopheles and whatever and singing along. And they, like, man, they, like, hit all those beats that they saw on, like, Twitter. And there was no spontaneity into it. It was just sort of just, like, like, they started laughing at the, like, the Universal logo at the beginning. And I'm just like, okay, like, this is stupid. Like, this isn't, this isn't here for you. We're not here for you. We're here for the cats. And it's also just like a certain level of like, if you are approaching cats with a, uh, you can be a little mean about it, but like 100% mean spiritedness. Like you don't get what everybody is having so much fun with. Right. It's not funny that, like dancing exists like that's not what's funny like I don't under like they were just sort of like laughing at the dumbest things where just somebody be like I'm a cat and they'd laugh and it's just like no that's just the name of the movie like that's just the premise right. of the movie like fucking wait your turn like get like just sort of get into it and no it was all very like performative and prescriptive and like I did not and it kind of ruined my whole experience of it and I feel like a an experience like what you were at Matthew with like a you know designated rowdy screening at the very least everybody's meeting that movie up at the same level or at least ideally mm-hmm. they should be. yeah well I just, the, that, that guy there was only one of him everyone right. else got it you know and it's yeah. kind of like that one 
person at a reading who's like, this is less of a question, more of a comment. Yes. It was very messy, <laughs> but everyone else really understood what was happening. Yeah. And I cannot tell you what it's like to be in that type of room when Skimble Shanks comes on screen for the first time. Because as we all know, with the Skimble Shanks sequence, like Monkey Strap starts the song. Yes. So we were all, so we all, I was singing along to the Monkey Strap part. A lot of people were, and people were just so jazzed. And then when Skimble Shanks came on screen, like people went ballistic excerpt sever like it was wild and also there's a moment there's also a moment actually during old deuteronomy where you see skimble shanks for the first time and he's just chilling in the background and people yelled out like skimble where is skimble oh my god and it was so great oh my gosh it was just magical and everyone swaying for mr mistopheles like you said like just everyone <sighs> loving that it was so well then okay so that was probably one of the most egregious parts because everyone loves mr mistopheles and everyone was so into it and at one point after judy dench did not appear uh straight white podcast bro yelled out well that's because your wand is a fucking pencil and i was like shut, shut up, up. Shut, Shut up. Someone guy. should have been ejected from the theater. First of all, first of all. Yeah, I thought the draft house had standards. If you are a heterosexual man, you it is not within your rights to make any type of Cats is not cats. yours. I'm sorry. It yeah. does not belong to you. Cats does not belong to you. It is not your narrative. You have plenty. Okay. Go watch right. 1917 again. I like, I like 1917, but I'm just saying, go watch 1917 don't, again. Don't Janine Cummins American Dirt this uh, this screening, sir. <laughs> Um, just a reminder, January 13th, 2020 is the Cats episode. Okay, so anyway, thank you for that <laughs> essential essential Cats report, Matthew. We, uh, we, we strive to have Cats content going forward as much as possible. So, but also, you are here. Well, okay, so we're going to talk about the movie Enough Said. We're going to get to that soon enough. But with all our new guests, Matthew, we tend to want to start our uh, conversation with you, because this is an Oscars podcast, and... Right. We want to sort of talk about, like, what drew you to the Oscars as, like, a subject of interest? Sort of, like, what's the first you remember being, like, interested in the Oscars? What got you on board? I, so the first year that I watched the Oscar telecast was probably the year 2000. So I'm 11 at this point, or 10. Or, yeah, I'm 11. And that's the year Gladiator won. But as a young, I would say one of my roots even is just Julia Roberts in general. Like I loved Julia Roberts and I had seen Aaron Brockovich. Um, and like, it's also, I think, a very concerning for a mother to see a son so in love with Aaron Brockovich, the movie. Because <laughs> even though she was so like, sort of like boobs forward in that movie she wasn't sexualized for men in that movie she was sexualized no. for power and like i right. think everybody was on board and everybody knew it so like if you're like your little son is obsessed with aaron brockovich you know it's not because he like wants to like do it with aaron brockovich right and um actually just yesterday i saw a a drag queen from australia tweet out a picture of herself with her hairy chest and and it was like smushed together and the caption said they're called boobs ed i love that and <laughs> like isn't they're called boobs ed so many young gay men's favorite like <laughs> like line like it's just amazing so I would say my entrance actually to oscar culture was just loving julia roberts seeing Aaron rockovich and then like 
my mom talking to me about the Oscars and being like, you know, it could win some things or something. And, and she used to watch the Oscars a lot as a kid, so it's kind of like we watched it together. And, and me, you know, I watched her give her acceptance speech and everything. Steven Soderbergh. Hi. There you are. Um, you truly just made me want to be the best actor that I, I suppose I never knew I could be uh, or aspire to. Um, and I made every attempt. Stick man, I see you. Um, so I thank you for really making me feel so... <laughs> I love it up here. Um, and that was kind of the intro for me to just Oscar culture. And then I started, you know, watching them every year. I, I would say I, I started becoming more obsessive with them like in the very beginning of college and I actually like tried to like email some people I remember very specifically what was first what was what is now award circuit used to be Oscar Igloo oh my god I, wow yeah and I actually emailed uh the guy at Oscar Igloo and was like I really love movies and this is you know it's still the early days of the internet so I wasn't up against you know like a lot of people where I was like, I would just like to write. And he actually had me write some things for him. And it was the year of Marion Cotillard winning, I remember. And I wrote this whole thing for him. And I didn't actually get picked up as a writer, but I wrote this whole thing about how Amy Adams was stubbed for Enchanted. And that was like my thing. Like that was my, <laughs> that was my bone to pick that year. To bring it back a little bit to Julia Roberts, like that's a win that I don't really think we've talked about on mic before. Not much, no. And like we talk about a true Oscar moment where it's like all of like cultural interest in the culture, because I, <laughs> I don't have a better way to phrase that, but like everybody ca- became galvanized around the Oscars because like Julia Roberts, who is like significant to anybody who watches movies, like could all like rally around that and feel good about that and like see that finally happen. And it's funny that like you mention Amy Adams because I was trying to rack in my brain immediately. Who's the next person that could do that, that, like, everybody's going to watch and be excited to watch this person win? And it feels like maybe it's only Amy Adams. Well, like, who else could we think of that could have that type of Julia Roberts winning an Oscar moment? Yeah. Well, I have, I have two things to say to that. Um, I, I feel like Amy Adams ha- takes actually a lot of... One of the reasons that Julia Roberts is so beloved is because I think that also the roles that she took were often casting her like she was cast in in roles where she was not a very difficult character she was always very affable and that was part of her her aura and i don't know if amy adams has the same all the time because she does do yeah difficult roles here and there so i don't know if it's but you know this oscar season really threw me through a lot of people, I feel like for a loop because I feel like Laura Dern was that type of person that everyone would rally around until it was the year of, you know, Jennifer Lopez as well. You know, mm-hmm. I felt like a lot of people this year were like so surprised to watch to watch themselves root against Laura Dern for the first time in their lives. Ever. It's also circum. It brings up the like the circumstantial nature of the Oscars, right. and like it has been a thing that has dismayed me this Oscar season. The fact that like we turned Laura Dern into a villain because we need to have 
villains, and Jennifer Lopez was our hero, and we had sort of claimed her first, I think. Yeah, uh, there's an element, too, that I think the people that are probably villainizing Laura Dern don't care for the movie and are underwhelmed by that performance. I think that's part of it, too. There's an aspect of that. You do keep bringing that part up. Um, Well... I, <laughs> I, we do. I mean, we disagree on this. I do think it's a fantastic performance. So I think I'm not saying I. I'm not saying that as someone who. Yeah, you were just supporting the. And I do like the movie quite a bit, but I think that's an element of that. I want to. I want to go back very quickly to the Julia Roberts thing because I have kind of a. I would say like a working. It's not even a theory, but it's almost just an observation about that win because I feel like. It is that moment at the moment that it happened, it was such a like, especially because that was at the time where like, you know, it took a long time for her to get to best actress, but she had been the people's princess of movies for the entire 90s. Right. And then she gets to that crowning moment in 2001. It's very symbolic and everything. Um, It's not the same road to best actress these days. You have like people like Jennifer Lawrence taking it like very early into into their career. But Julia Roberts, it felt like we made her wait for it for so long. Longer than most actresses. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's Um, like basically a full decade between Pretty Woman and Aaron Brockovich. Correct. Well, there's no other nominations. Yeah, exactly. Well, and still Magnolias. Right. But Magnolias was the year before Pretty Woman. So yeah, you're right. There were no nominations in between. The thing about Julia Roberts is her career and just that span of 10 years from Pretty Woman to Aaron Brockovich was defined by like these sort of like wild ups and downs that were reported on in the media as if they were like her career is over, her career is back, her career is over, her career is back. I have no idea what Mary Riley you're talking about. Mary but she like she gets the high on Pretty Woman, and then like she leaves Kiefer Sutherland at the altar, and it's like her she's done. She's like you know um, you know she's not going to come back from this. She marries Lyle Lovett, and everybody's just like she's gone crazy. And then it's just like you're right, the slump of like Mary Riley and like that whole era, and then like my best friend's wedding is a comeback, and then she sort of even had like a downswing. Well, not really, because, like, my best friend's wedding, Notting Hill in, like, 99, and then Aaron Brockovich in 2000. But it always felt like, because even Aaron Brockovich was just sort of just like, it's Julia, like, we never saw her before. And it's just like, technically, yes. Like, it's sort of, it's the diff- it's a different kind of role than we really had seen her before. But it's like... This idea that, like, she was always coming back from the brink of oblivion in a way that was never really entirely true, but we needed it to have those, like, dramatic stakes because she was selling, like, People magazines and she was selling, you know, the covers of all these sort of, like, glossy whatevers in a way that, like, you know who it reminds me of right now, actually? is Jennifer Aniston. And look at the way that, like, Jennifer Aniston literally having a pleasant conversation with Brad Pitt at the SAG Awards has become a week's worth of, like, they're getting married again. You know what I mean? Just, like, it's so crazy. So the one thing I I, I do want to say about her win, though, is that I feel like everyone loved it then, and then there was this period, especially, like, I mean, I was in college, and college is its own fake like this whole like you gotta like certain things i feel yeah. like in the film in the film world in college and i felt like 
there was that thing where people were like, oh, well, it was really, you know, Ellen Burstyn should have won because she right. was she was actually doing acting and Julia Roberts was just being Julia Roberts. Right. But the actual correct position that you come to, it's like you have to go through, oh, wow, Julia Roberts won and she's a star. And then you have to have that phase where you're like, oh, the Oscar should be about quality and Ellen Burstyn should have won. And then you have to eventually wrap back around to, no, Julia Roberts did what very few actresses can do, which is trans- transfer movie starness into acting. Yes. And she deserved an Oscar because not everyone can do that. It is why I sort of defend Sandra Bullock winning for The Blind Side more than most people do. That is a skill that takes a lot to do. I would say Julie Roberts and Sandy are two of the people who do it best. I would say the third person is maybe Cameron Diaz and Charlie's Angels. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good. We had a whole yeah. Char- we had a whole Cameron Diaz conversation recently. So like we were we, we are you're kidding us on a high of Cameron Diaz. <laughs> um, the 2000 best actress race though, just well before we get off of Aaron Brockovich, which is not the movie we're talking about, although god, I could talk about Aaron Brockovich for days on end. But like the yeah. 2000 Oscar uh, best actress Oscars. One of those years where like any of four people could have won, and it would have been the right like dessert. Like they would have deserved it, right? They were good enough to deserve. And it. then Juliette Binoche. And then Juliette Binoche, <laughs> who like whatever. I we love her. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah. like, I think Julia was the right choice. I think yeah, Burston would have been a deserving winner. Linny would have been a deserving winner. Um, Laura Linneyford, you can count on me. Uh, Joan Allen for the contender is great, and like. As it turned out, our last shot to give Joan Allen an Oscar. How sad. Um, bring bring back Joan Allen as an awards player, please. I beg you. Like, please, Ryan Murphy, it. if you're listening, don't <gasps> don't don't get your claws on Joan Allen. No, you can't. <laughs> no, 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 no. We want we want her to have substance, not you know, <laughs> yeah. schluck. Um, yeah, this is a Best Actress race we have talked about before, where it's like we both kind of feel like our vote changes with the day, but. That is yeah. the perfect way to put it because it is absolutely right that Julia Roberts won. Even though, like, maybe the one that I vote for most days is Laura Linney. Um, yeah. And the thing about Aaron Brockovich is, and talk, talking about bringing Matthew into um, the Oscar sort of realm by by the, the vehicle of Aaron Brockovich is, that was a spring release. And we talk about the Oscars yeah. so much in, in the context of these, like, year-end releases that are, like, positioning themselves for Oscar. But the ones that open earlier in the year are the ones that, like, people who are outside of the Oscar sort of... I don't want to say echo chamber because that's an inherently pejorative term, but you know what I mean. Like, the Oscar sort of, like, Mm -hmm. star chamber, right? And, um... But the ones that open earlier in the year, your Silence of the Lambs, your Aaron Brockovich, even something I don't love, like a Forrest Gump, those are the movies that people will see earlier in the year, and then they show up at the Oscars, and they're just like, oh, I've seen that, Black Panther's one, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And those are always so valuable for, like, drawing people in, and they're the ones you hear about, I think, a lot in terms of people being interested in the Oscars because they had seen this movie or that movie earlier in the year. Agreed. So good on yeah. Aaron Brockovich. Okay, so now, Matthew, we've got your Oscars origin story. Now we turn to you and say, explain yourself. Why did you pick Enough Said? So, you know, there are, just looking at the roster of movies you do and, and thinking about, I mean, and you know, uh, Joe, I also used to read, I think it was a Tumblr that you had about this subject as well, right? Yes, yes, it started as a Tumblr. So, yeah, so, I mean, I read that as well, and I think that there are so many categories of film, and it almost reminds me of the, 
of the heckler at Cats that I was talking about. That like there are type of there are those types of films that you can approach with uh, this podcast with with like man, it was the little engine that could, and we loved it so much, and it didn't make it. And then there's those that feel like manufactured to win Oscars, and they fail just because they were not good enough. But like I always think about those movies that come out after someone is supposed to win, and they're just trying to get that buzz again. Yeah. Very, very, very the founder with Michael Keaton. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Like, just seems manufactured, yeah, to get that person the win that they should get. Right. And I just wanted to do one of those little engine that could movies. I think that those are my favorite types of films in general, just like the ones that are so heart-filled and done so well. Yes. Um, and I just wanted to talk about a movie without, without Nary, with Nary and I roll. Yeah, I think that's, and I think that you picked mm-hmm. the right one because I, you know, not speaking for Chris, but like, I loved this movie when it came out, and then watching it again, I was so happy to. But no, I love this movie too, and I was happy when you picked it for that very same like reason. We've done a lot of movies that we actually really like recently, um, but this is definitely one that carries a bit of like a sadness to it too because of the James Gandolfini thing, and. I I didn't realize until doing the research for this episode that he showed up at every major precursor, but like in the same Except supporting the actor race. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did he not show up at the Golden Globes? No, Julia was the no. only. Oh, uh, see, I thought he. I must have misread that. But like Daniel Bruhl's the one that we talk about in this mm-hmm. very race of oh, in getting shut out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it we will... can of course blame Jonah Hill for that. I think the thing about 2013 is, and we'll certainly get into it as we go along in the podcast, every acting category felt like it was super competitive. Every every category that year felt like there were just too many major contenders for what we were going to end up getting. I think Best Actor is the one I talk about the most, because Best Actor went like 10 deep in terms of people you could have honestly seen getting nominated and didn't. That was Robert Redford for All is Lost, and Oscar Isaac for Inside Llewyn Davis, and Tom Hanks for Captain Phillips, and Joaquin Phoenix for her. Like, There's so many people. You could have filled up an entire category of people who didn't get nominated for Best Actor, and it would have like seemed perfectly normal as a Best Actor category. Um, and I think that was present to a lesser degree in the other categories. And I think you see that's why um, people like Daniel Brühl and James Gandolfini sort of like left out for supporting actor. Um, I think it's just a really interesting, well, first let me, let me lay out the basics of uh, the movie and then we'll have Matthew do a 60 second plot and then we'll jump into it. So um, enough said. 2013 movie directed by, uh, written and directed by Nicole Holofcener, starring Julia Louis Dreyfus, James Gandolfini, Catherine Keener, Tony Collette, Ben Falcone, Tracy Faraway, and of course, and introducing Tavi Gevinson. I don't even know if this is her very first movie, but I'll say introducing Tavi Gevinson. Um, <laughs> premiered at the Toronto Film Festival September 7th, 2013, and then opened for all uh, September 18th, so it was not too far away after that. Um, a very sort of crowded year in 2013 for, um, movies, you know, comedy movies that made me feel really sort of like happy. This was the same year as Francis Ha. I always sort of think about this and Francis Ha and Before Midnight in sort of triptych because those were the three actresses that showed up at the Globes that I was just like, I can't believe that they got nominated Mm -hmm. for Golden Mm -hmm. Globes. 
Um, but before we get too far into this, Matthew, would you be willing to try and describe the plot of this movie in 60 seconds? Yeah, is there, like, a timer? Like, am I going to be, like... We'll uh, give you a warning at 30 seconds and 10 seconds. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, okay. I time it on my phone, but yes. Okay. Um, and as I said, Chris and I, when we do these, we are flying very much by the seat of our pants. So um, yeah. things get left out, t- 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 tangents get followed down that shouldn't be followed, and time runs <laughs> out, and it's all and it's all a mishmash. But uh, we make a good effort. So I believe in you. All right? All right. All right. I will start the timer, and you will be ready to go. And go. Okay, Enough Said is the story of a Los Angeles-based masseuse played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who, while at a party, meets two important people. Catherine Keener, who is a poet, a a newly divorced poet, and James Gandolfini, who is a newly divorced uh, cultural preservationist for TV. Uh, And she begins a friendship with Catherine Keener and begins dating James Gandolfini and eventually finds out, well, you know, kind of, puts it together that they are the ones who divorced each other. And even though she shouldn't, even though she, she, she finds it out, she doesn't tell them because she wants to get more information on James Gandolfini from Catherine Keener and can use to see him. She's also best friends with Tony Collette. And as she starts to date uh, James Gandolfini, her, her view of him begins to get poisoned by Catherine Keener. And there's also a really touching subplot with her daughter who is going away to college that year. Two, one, done. Well done. <laughs> now if I could just get my timer to go off. I'm glad that you were able to fit in the storyline with her daughter, too, because like that feels very essential to me, that like this tension that Julia Louis-Dreyfus' character is going through the whole movie, it carries this undercurrent of like her life is about to change because her daughter is gone and the way it will be gone. And like the way that she avoids dealing with that and how that kind of is representative of how she avoids other types of confrontations or having to like, you know, whether it's like dealing with a shitty client that she has or like her friend's privilege that she just like lets slide by. Yeah. Well, I I wrote a note when I was watching it that like this movie would still be great, but it would lack so much depth if it didn't have the daughter subplot. And mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of lesser writers because obviously Nicole wrote and directed it. So there are a lot of lesser writers who would have let that go unexplored and would have said like, no, this is a, a one way train. This is an express train making express stops and we're staying right. on the James thing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it allows a whole subplot where Julia Louis Dreyfus not only kind of starts to push away, she, not she, she is sad that her daughter's going to leave, but at the same time also starts to push her away, right? Which is so often what happens in life that she starts to make a connection with her, her daughter's best friend and kind of inadvertently pushes her daughter away just as she's about to lose her at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's so well done. It also makes a case for that all your other relationships in your life have an impact on you. And like, and, and you know, it's like nothing in your life is sort of happening in isolation. Right. So like she's going through right. this sort of very um, 
thorny, you know, new but interesting but exciting, but also then once she finds out about the Catherine Keener thing, very kind of dangerous um, relationship with Gandolfini and is she going to get found out and all that. But like that's also happening while she's going through all the stuff with her daughter and while, you know, she's still got, you know, the the friendship with Tony Collette, which is sort of like this like subplot where Tony Collette can't fire her housekeeper, which is like, that that's, that's a whole interesting... Nicole, Wait, can we... Yes. Sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. You are our guest. Jump right in. I did anyone else catch that the housekeeper is Angela Johnson of yes, the viral, beautiful of the name viral... Angela yeah. Johnson, and also Bonquiqui, correct from the from the burger. Yes, that's Angela Johnson. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, you can have yeah. a Coke, Angela Johnson. Yes. Wait. So what is what is she from? I I have I I'm I'm unfamiliar. She's a so she was on. She was a comedian. She is a comedian who was on like one or two seasons of Mad TV, and she uh, ended up having huh. that viral uh, character that was the woman who worked at Burger King. Who oh, I was, do remember like, this. Right, who was like security? Yes, a, that's oh, Angela Johnson, and she also does um, a very racist uh, sketch sketch about nail salons that a lot of that about like. Um, Vietnamese women who work at nail salons that was very racist that would not fly now but it was also kind of like the basis for like a lot of jokes that like Plastique Tiara did or, or, uh, mm-hmm. like oddly enough yeah. on Drag Race so God, but, Mad yeah, TV would was... not survive in the current climate um, no it would not <laughs> um, the Tony Collette character is so interesting first of all a I always want to shout out a movie that will take an actress who's not from America and have her play a character in your like American movie and just let her be Australian. You know what I mean? Just like, just let her yeah. be not American and you don't, you don't have to write your way around it. You know what I mean? It's Los Angeles. Everybody's coming from somewhere else. So it's just like, it's totally right. Yeah. The funny thing was watching it though. I still felt like <laughs> that Tony Collette was doing an accent, but just like a different Australian dialect, because even the way she was talking felt a little different than her natural speaking voice. Well, she wanted yeah, to it's like a little affected. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like she is so used to putting on an affect right. when she acts that she was like, "Well, I'm gonna just do like I'm from Victoria, but I'm gonna do one from like New South Wales." Right, <laughs> and they won't know, but I'll know. Like, that right? Kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really bad at um, differentiating. English accents from each other and also from Australian accents. Like I've gotten better at that part. Um, and Australian accents from New Zealand accents. So like I'm, I'm getting better at telling the various white people in my life apart. So, um, and when I say people in my life, I mean, actors and actresses, cause they are the people in my life. Okay. So speaking of telling white women apart, <laughs> um, I want to talk about Nicole Hall of center in her movies because I love her and I love, I love, pretty much all of her movies her newest movie the land of steady habits was that the name of it yes um it's for netflix that was a disappointment but the rest of her movies like i've seen this complaint lately that it's like her movies are just about privileged white women but what i think is special about those about her movies is that she is actually interrogating things like that like the relationship between julia louis Dreyfus's eva and her friend tony collette and tony collette is like her whole life is about moving her furniture around yes and whether or not she can hire her fire her maid and it's like it's not like the movie is 
doesn't have a point of view of people like that. It absolutely does. Well, and you um, watch a movie like Please Give, and that's the whole of that movie. I is love grappling with these sort of like, and it still feels a little insular, and it still feels a little like, you know, almost like a therapy session, and that like it's very like self focused. Um, mm-hmm. But like, at least at least it is that, you know what I mean? And I think there's value. Mm. I think there's a lot of value in that. Please give might be actually my favorite of all her movies. Now that I've sort of taken, I think it's mine too. I probably would need to rewatch more of them again. I definitely want Um, to revisit walking and talking because it's been so long since I've seen it, but like, it's such a good movie. Um, And then the other movies, which we can talk about is lovely and amazing friends with money. Friends with money is probably the one that most like aggressively examines. these things. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Whereas maybe enough said is the most passive about them a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think there are are plenty of filmmakers who sort of appeal to the rich white women demographic without sort of like holding the mirror up to them. And at least mm-hmm. the you know her movies do do that you know she holds the mirror up to them and ultimately does so with while having a warm heartedness to her and having a sort of humanism to her that doesn't feel mm-hmm. you know aggressive or um I don't know well and it's all human drama too which yeah. is like uh, this is that's part of the reason why her movies feel like such a relief to like watch because like, there's not a whole lot of movies like these, this, these type of days or, you know, where it's just like, it's really just about people living their lives. Like it's, you could talk about these characters. Like you're talking about your friends going through it, you know, it's, it's that Mm -hmm. type of, I, I mean, they're all, some of them are darker comedies than like enough said, which is a fairly light movie. Um, but like that's what makes her movie special, and we need more movies like these. Yeah, totally. It's shitty that it took until "Can You Ever Forgive Me" for her to finally get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, because even just like she's a great director, especially with actors, but like as a screenwriter too, like you have to imagine she could have been nominated for something before that, and it didn't even end up being her movie. Um, it originally was. We all remember the Julianne Moore "Watch What Happens Live" episode. <laughs> yeah, where we do though, but maybe remind our listeners part. because uh, maybe not everybody so, does. Right. So, can you ever forgive me? Was originally um, a few years before it was made. Supposed to be with Julianne Moore, and I forget who the actor was supposed to be in the Richard E. Grant role. But Nicole Holocenter was going to direct it, and like it was ready to film. And because reported like disagreements on how to approach the material between Julianne Moore and Nicole Hall of Center, Nicole Hall of Center pulled the plug on it, basically. Um, And Julianne Moore said that she was fired, (laughs) which like the thing was like a lot of people made a lot of drama about it online. And of course, you saw it on Twitter for like four days. Um, But like those type of things just happen. Yes. More often than than probably even we know about, but yeah, right. projects are a, a, initially supposed to star, you know, certain people. And I mean, there was a note on Enough Said that Enough Said was initially supposed to have been um, Louis C.K. in the James Gandolfini role, which, like, thank, oh, thank God, God it wasn't right. Yeah, yeah. 
like you know now i can still watch this movie um but yeah the thing about nicole holofcener is i mean we've talked about it a lot this year in terms of like what movies sort of feel like they have oscar worthy and put that in scare quotes Oscar-worthy subjects, right? And Nicole Holofcener's movies, in addition to being sort of, you know, small and writerly and low-budget and Indian, whatever, are all about women first and foremost. Like, Land of Steady Habits was the first time that she had ever made a movie where, like, a male character was front and center. It's also my least favorite of hers. Like, maybe draw that mm-hmm. line <laughs> from one to another. Yeah. But, like, we talk about these movies and, like, Little Women still got the Best Picture nomination this year, but it still felt like it was it was never in a conversation with these sort of very male-focused movies like The Irishman and, like, um, 1917 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And for movies about women primarily to sort of move to the front of that line, they really have to seemingly, like, really fight for it. And even when you see movies that get Oscar nominations, like Can You Ever Forgive Me, like Wild, like, you know, any number of other things, they're just sort of acting nominations to fill out the acting fields. They're never really in conversation for the major awards. And I think Nicole Mm -hmm. Holofcener, because her movies were both small and about women, her ceiling was often, like, the Independent Spirit Awards, or, like, for, (laughs) spoiler, we'll talk about it soon, for Enough Said, the AARP Movies for Grunts Awards, thank goodness. Um, really right. was here for enough said. The awards that matter. The awards truly. that matter. Truly, the awards that matter. Absolutely. And um, I, I think I, I, go for it, Matthew. I would say the other part of that is that movies about women also have to be about something larger. Or I mean, mm-hmm. not large. You know, I'm not saying large than women, but you know what I mean. Like it needs to, especially have, if they're contemporary. Right. Yeah. It needs to have a theme that the uh, academy can latch onto, aside from being about the interior life of a woman, because that will bore them. But right. if it's about the interior life of a man, that's the most important. <laughs> right. That's the most know. important interior there is. Yeah. Right. But I mean, that's why I, you know, like I think Little Women of all the movies about women that could have made it this year, I think Little Women was also a movie about being an artist and being a writer. And so, you know, the the Academy loves films about being artists and creators. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gave it an edge against all the other movies about women that didn't make it like if anything, you know, Hustlers is a movie about women that kind of that, you know, I think really wanted to position itself like a big short, like an economic movie. But I think to voters, it just felt like it was a movie about two friends who fucked each other over too many times. And they were like, oh, it's just a movie about Constance and Jennifer being friends. And I think Chris makes a good point about it also being contemporary versus a period thing. Where, like, Mm -hmm. period movies like uh, Little Women and The Favorite last year and certain other things like that, those are settings where it almost feels like modern day awards voters are have an easier time looking back and just being like wow it was so different for women back then and not then they can't look at things like hustlers and can you ever forgive me and wild movies like that and just be like oh wow it's still different for women now you know what i mean yeah. and mm-hmm. um it's i think i think that's a big part of it i don't know chris you were sort of you were broaching well, that subject uh, earlier No, I mean, I think Matthew also illustrated it really well with Hustlers as an example, um, that it's just like, eh, and opposite Little Women too, where it's like, maybe something like a costume drama, they can like, use that as an avenue to say why something is great, like when you're talking about the craft of something. Right. Right. Um, 
because like uh, Oscar voters are probably not looking at a Nicole Hall Center movie and saying, oh, look at the craft of this. Whereas like right. enough said as some like just shoddy camera stuff going on. But it that doesn't diminish its value. Right. Um, and I the funny thing is, I think one of the only movies about women that really felt like the movie about an interior life of a woman that made it it recently is ladybird and it had to be yeah. a, a technically perfect film you know right. to even hobnob with the male focused films of that year and then go home empty-handed you know yeah it, it almost felt like a comet like you only see it once every like 17 years or something like that right but, mm-hmm. yeah i think that's right um and even that like it's a I guess you would call it a contemporary period piece, but like some of the things that got that movie some like credit within the industry is like, this is a period of time that people can remember and like, it looks at it nostalgically. Correct. The interesting thing about enough said and all of the things that we're talking about is that it's closest Avenue to Oscar though, was still a man. Yeah. Like James Gandolfini was the most likely nomination that this movie would have scored. And like, there was a lot of like steam there that didn't pay off. And it's interesting that like when like, they're disregarding this movie because it's about again the interior life of a woman that they still overlook the man in that movie well and it's funny because it's almost the first time in a nicole holofcener movie that there was a male character who you even could even think of as a possibility for an awards campaign not that she hasn't had men in her movies or that they weren't good she's had um I'm trying to think of like Kevin Corrigan and Walking and Talking or Oliver, Oliver Platt's Platt. really, really great and please give. And please give. But this is the first time that like the actual role feels um like an awards type role, right? And yeah. and Gandolfini was so beloved. And then uh in June of twenty thirteen he dies suddenly and unexpectedly. And so then there's I mean, you talk about like Talking about that as an angle feels very crass, and it is very crass. Um, but that definitely played into it. I think sometimes we overestimate the effect of a posthumous campaign, and we feel like, oh, mm-hmm. that'll work because, like, you know, Oscar voters are sad that somebody has died, so they'll want to give them one last sort of like nomination. And I feel like, to me, when an actor dies, and that's part that's you know then you're carrying on the campaign after they've died it almost feels like the oscar conversation has to have already been there for <laughs> yeah. to like you it it can't it can't start after they've died or it almost feels ghoulish to do it that way but it's just like Heath Ledger weirdly even though he died 6 months before that movie even came out and all a full year he died on oscar nomination day the mm-hmm. year before uh, he was nominated for The Dark Knight. But even still, that Oscar conversation was already kind of underway because those photos had appeared of him in costume and everybody was like, what is going on? And there were sort of like these whispers about like that this performance is like really something. And and, and he'd already been already nominated started. and was likely the yes. like se- was likely second place to Philip Seymour Hoffman for Brokeback Mountain. And he Whereas was like, yeah. James Gandolfini. Yeah. 
Yeah, even though the Sopran- you have the Sopranos, it's one of those things, and you see it with Julia Louis-Dreyfus in the same movie, is that, like, TV actors are often disregarded. Like, yes. I wonder if James Gandolfini had already been nominated for something else if he would have the nomination for this movie. Well, I, I want to add to that, you know, we're in obviously a place now where the Golden Globes and the Emmys are overrun with movie stars. You know, it's like they're doing HBO stuff. They're doing so many things where movie stars can go onto TV and then win all the awards. And it's very hard still to go the other way. Right. Um, you so look on- at somebody recently like Allison Janney, who was such a, you know, Emmy Awards, you know, yeah. order for over the years with the West Wing and Mom and all these other things. But like, she had to have been a ensemble player in so many movies before I, Tanya, for I think that to have been, to have worked. Do you yes. know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, And I do feel like there's this, like, it almost feels like you have to put in time and put in hours as a movie person or you know you do the steve carell route at root and make 40 year old virgin and all of a sudden you're a movie person so like you know but it Mm -hmm. it does take some sort of transitional moment or you know period for that to happen and i don't think it had happened yet for julia louis dreyfus or james gandolfini at this point and on on top of that and i just want to i feel like also if you really look at the film, the film is a film that appreciates television because he works as a cultural preservationist. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment where they're walking through watching people watch TV. And if that, if, if it had changed and it would have been him being obsessed, being a cultural preservationist of movies and they had talked about films, his chances of a nomination would have gone up 50%. But because but because he was talking about TV, I think that also really put him behind the eight ball. Yeah, mm. I think that's, that's interesting. I also think it's a, it's 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 interestingly an against type role in terms of the things that he had been getting cast in. Were like he's obviously Tony Soprano looms so large over Gandolfini's entire career, but he had played you know bodyguards and and mobsters and cops, and I remember him being like the other cop who I'm pretty sure ends up being possessed by the devil in that Denzel Washington movie. Does anyone know what I'm talking Fallen. about? Fallen. Fallen, right? Isn't Gandolfini, isn't that Gandolfini's role in that movie? Like, I feel like it is. I, I will look it up, but... And even in a movie like yeah. The Mexican, where he ends up playing a gay character, but, like, he's a gay hitman or something like that, or, like, a bodyguard yeah. or some sort of, like, that, where, like, there's still this sort of, like, you know... He he's got a tough guy job, even if he's you know also he's also gay. So imagine you know a gay guy. Yeah, having a there's tough guy an job. undercurrent of violence to yeah. whatever the roles are that he's playing. At the very least, it's like an undercurrent if he's not an outright violent person. Um, I don't know if he is the cop that gets possessed and fallen. However, I will give you three guesses of what his character name is. In fallen, what? yes. It is the most James Gandolfini character name. Of course he has named this. His name's fucking Lou. Lou! (laughs) (laughs) You just look at the James Gandolfini credit and it's No last name. Yeah, it's just Lou. Just Lou. He's like like Lady Gaga in Star is Born. Just Allie. But you see him... (laughs) How great. (laughs) How great. How great, great. Allie. Oh Um... my gosh. Halsey. (laughs) 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 That was both the worst meme I saw... She's doing so well right 
the worst meme I saw yesterday, but also the one that made me laugh the loudest, was just um, it was just quote how great Halsey watching nine eleven happen. I was just like, it was so wrong, but it made me laugh so so hard. Um, now I can't remember who said it. If you if you did that uh, tweet, uh, claim yourself because uh, well done. Um, yep. No, but the thing about Gandolfini playing this sort of this character who has no. Um, undercurrent of violence in him at all like even when he finds out about this thing and he gets pissed he doesn't sort of like have this any kind of like tony soprano echoes in his anger to him at all yeah and it reminded me um after he had died and after the movie came out there was uh michael imperioli had said to somebody about how um he had seen the trailer for the movie and he said that was the most like james gandolfini in his real life that he had ever seen him in a role. And he said that he didn't even need to see the movie. Um, a, because it was, you know, too sad for him at the time, but also he was just like, I wouldn't need to see the movie. Cause like that was, you know, Jim being Jim um, in his life, which is. I'm, I'm sweet. really glad you brought that up. Cause I was going to say like, that's part of why I, at the time definitely thought like the sentimental nomination, this posthumous nomination that could have happened for him was going to happen because like he worked with a lot of people in the industry and like the way that they talked about him was that he was the sweetest man. Yeah. And like, it felt like a way to honor that. And I don't know. He's really good in this movie too. Like we haven't really talked about like the quality of the performance. I think he is fucking wonderful in this movie. He is, and it's a. It's also. I mean, we all know, even from this year's nominations, that the Academy can sometimes mistake more acting for better acting. Yeah. And he is so subtle in this film, and he, it's. Uh, it it's like you know it's funny for 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 someone in the movie who can't whisper. It's a very quiet performance. Yeah. <laughs> it's and also it's a. Um, performance that relies very much on uh, chemistry and he and Julia have really really wonderful chemistry that isn't like this kind of swoony love at first sight chemistry I like the fact that this Mm -hmm. movie allows them to be sort of agnostic about each other to begin with you know what I mean like definitely he Mm -hmm. sort of he she appeals to him when when he first sees her you can tell that at the party but like that first date is a little um you know, it's first datey. It's not that it's a bad yeah. first date, but like there's a, a a low intimacy factor to that first date, right? And and he wants to kiss her at the end, and she doesn't want to, and that sort of felt like very sort of realistically um, awkward. And it's not this like, oh my god, it's the most awkward thing that's ever happened. How am I going to live? But it's just like, you know, it's a realistic level of awkward, and you can sort of feel it. And the. Mm-hmm. The end of that scene where, you know, they shake hands and she says, I like your hands. I still like your hands, your paddles. And he says, um, I really like your ass. And she, her, the way she reacts to that is so funny to me where it's just sort of just like she has this sort of like half gasp, half laugh to it where she's just like she's clearly um, delighted by it, but also is just like sort of just so surprised to have heard it. And her reactions to so many things in this movie feel on that level where it's just like, it's, I don't know. I think it's so. She's incredibly wonderful as well in this movie in a way that it's like, 
again, like what Matthew said, it's like more acting is better acting, apparently, to I have some no Academy idea voters. what you Joaquin about that. I don't I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you are... Joaquin right into that. Um, <laughs> um, speaking of Joaquin, there's the meme going around now of like, look how they film this film of Joaquin Joaquin. Oh, um, and that's it. Um, yeah, apparently all he had to he do was walk down a set of stairs week, to win that Oscar. Like for God's sake. Yeah. Oh Jesus Christ! Um, um, I, sorry, what was I going to say? Oh God damn it! We were talking about Julia Louis Dreyfus. Well, we should always be talking about Julia. <laughs> oh, well, it's not exactly against type, but if you think about her two biggest, her two most well-known roles, which obviously Veep had only been out for a year at this point, but at this point, her two biggest—I mean, at this point, being right now in 2019, her two biggest roles right. are Elaine Bennis and uh, Selena, Selena Meyer, and they're both really out like outlandish like big broad you know broad strokes characters yeah and this is also like a very quiet performance for julia louis dreyfus because yeah. she's very she's very much a screwball actress you know well and it's not even i think you bring up uh, elaine and selena and i think big is is true but also they're both very sharp edged characters yes. and mm-hmm. uh what is her name in this eva in this movie is not is yeah. not that is sort of um is a lot more sort of soft around the edges and is and is not quick even that's and i think that's why the scene where um she sort of she gives him such a hard time she gets drunk and she starts poking at gandolfini for all of the things that his ex-wife Catherine keener had poked at him about throughout their marriage that he told her about um that and that's the scene where like the insidiousness of this movie's sort of central plot comes to focus, right? Where like right. Eva is channeling all this stuff she hears from Keener, and and sort of hitting Gandolfini where it hurts and where she knows that it hurts him, and that's why it's so sort of cruel to watch that happen. And even still watching this, and it's like the third or fourth time I've seen this movie, and watching that scene, I still get so mad at her because a she knows how much it's you know, this kind of stuff hurts, hurt him and gets to him. And also that like, you're so nice. Don't do this. You're a nice person. Why are you doing this? (laughs) And, and I like the fact that in that scene also, like her friends are at all that time being like, just like, why are you being an asshole? Don't do this. Don't be an asshole. And it's just shocking when the, when the, um, when she talks about like, you know, how many calories are in guacamole. And I'm just like, I get so pissed this is also a movie that handles um fat people well like handles the issue of like it doesn't pretend that a relationship between these two characters wouldn't have that as an element it doesn't pretend that she wouldn't Mm -hmm. notice it doesn't pretend that that's not like a thing that that you know no pun intended weighs on his mind or on you know that that is absent from the relationship at all. And I like that because mm-hmm. it feels like it's realistic without being mean. It's realistic while being like humanist about it. And I appreciated that. It's just like small things like that, that make the movie, like you said, very real that I think Nicole Hall of center does very well in making like relationships on screen be authentic in ways that we don't often see. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Can I bring up Catherine Keener for a second, though? I wanted to while we were talking about Hall of Cener, but um, to just sort of bring it around to her. This was Nicole Hall of Cener's fifth movie, and it was her fifth one 
made with Catherine Keener. They're sort of like they had, they were a package deal through all of those movies. Mm-hmm. Keener was kind of her muse, and I think it's so interesting to watch Keener play the exotic one in this movie because so many times in Hall of Seners movies, she's either the main character, the protagonist, or somebody sort of like not far off from the protagonist, right? She's the main character, one yeah. of the two of them in Walking and Talking, main character in Lovely Amazing, main character in Please Give. And yet this one almost has being John Malkovich vibes where like she's not the main character, so she can be a little um, sharper or meaner or more. I think that intriguing. casting makes it funnier. Yes. Almost like you, you, this is maybe the character in the movie that we laugh at. Um, cause she's also like the asshole of the movie. And yeah, I think yeah. it's funnier that Catherine Keener is playing that role when you can easily imagine her in the Julia Louis Dreyfus role, particularly with a Hollow Center relationship. Yeah. I don't know. Something about it made that whole like dynamic funnier. But she's so adept at playing either one of those kinds of characters. And I love those kind <laughs> of actors who you can see who just as easily makes sense as being the good guy as the, as the bad guy. I always say this about like Gene Hackman, where it's just like he's the ultimate good guy in a movie and the ultimate bad guy in a movie. So like he can go either way. And I love that about Catherine Keener on this scale. And the second she shows up, I'm so interested in her. I'm so fascinated by her, which is what Eva is. Like that's how Eva reacts to her too. So like it's super perfect. She is, she reveals how mean she can be in her in talking about her husband to Eva and so everything that then Gandolfini remind me what Gandolfini's name is in this movie um I'm so Albert bad at that. Albert that's yes. right because they have the whole fat Albert joke right right and yeah. the kids and her kids have no idea what she's talking about which I also totally love <laughs> can we talk about the kids her her daughter and also um Tavi Gevinson, who I actually do think is pretty good in this. For it, once I got on board with that's just like that's just how she talks, that's just how she is, that's her affect. Um, I I enjoyed her performance in this movie a lot more. I love how the teenagers in this movie are like precisely the type of teenage asshole. Like Julia Louis Dreyfus's daughter isn't so much of the asshole, but like the way that she gets annoyed with her mother, justifiably sometimes, right. feels so specific. And I'm yeah. not sure if Nicole Hall of Center has kids or not, or she's just like that good at understanding the human condition across generations. I don't know, but like yeah. it, it's just another one of those things that makes this movie incredibly authentic. Um, well, and, and that's, I think I was talking about before, like, I felt like there were so many movies that would have downplayed the relationship with Julia Dreyfus and her children. And the fact that this movie wants to go there really is such a credit to it. And it goes there so well. Um, the moment where Julia Dreyfus is letting her daughter's friend paint her toenails and she's like, you never want to do that. That's like a quietly heartbreaking moment. Like, you know, like a daughter being like, this is a way that you have never wanted to bond with me. And you can see her being like, mom, I want to paint your toenails. And then all of a sudden she comes home. It's like a cheating scene. It's like, she comes home and it's like you and you. Yeah. And (laughs) then later on, Tavi Gevinson's mother played by Amy Landecker, who um, is the best line parent. Oh yes. (laughs) She calls her a dyke. (laughs) Yes. And then, and then Julia's That's another moment where her reaction is to like, 
kind of shock laugh at yes, something, right. and yeah. like it makes the moment so like funny. Yes, it's, it's my awesome. favorite moment in the film. She's so shocked and like delighted, kind of. Yes, in a way. Yeah. Oh my god! Like truly, like because she's not a girly girl, but she's you know like right. it's, it's so weird to it's to, like that's is that what you thought this whole time? You could have just asked me, right? If I were a lesbian or bisexual or something. Uh, I wanted to go back really quickly to the Catherine Keener thing that I remembered I was going to say. Yeah, good. I think that it's such an interesting career choice to have Eva be a masseuse because I do think it's a creative and healing profession, but it's very much like a... It's like a, it's still freelancing. Like she doesn't know where her next check is coming from. She needs to have her clients, you know, she needs to be doing her grunt work. And so much of the movie is so good about dis- displaying like that first shot where you see that Julia Louis-Dreyfus is dwarfed by her car yeah. and the size of the massage table is so good. The massage table seems to get bigger in each scene too. Almost <laughs> yeah. like it's so funny that so, it's such a production to get it up the, up those stairs. So it's almost like, Julia Dreyfus is a creative person who is doing a very practical form of creativity, you know? Yes. And then she gets so jealous of meeting Catherine Keener and her first interaction with her being like, yeah, and I'm a dreamer when she says she's a poet. (laughs) She's a poet, yes! It's so perfect because I think what happens is, you know, I think we all have those moments, especially we're all here writers. Like, if we met someone who was a famous writer or, you know, especially earlier in our careers or something, like, you know, we would take everything they say as law. So she sees her as an artist who's actually made it to the point that like, she yeah. only has to worry about writing poetry every once in a while and is able to pay her bills. And it's interesting to see, you know, someone who is in this movie, she's supposed to be, I guess, late forties, right. You know, like someone who's in her late forties, find someone who is that she like, is like, it awestruck by her and takes everything she says as like almost canon. She's like, well, if this woman is so smart and she's made it as a poet, then everything she says about James Gandolfini must be correct. Right. Mm-hmm. Even though she's experiencing Albert and knows that those things. Right. It's about whose opinions we um, value more than our own almost because we admire somebody. We tend to think, Oh, like, you know, they must be right about me, even though mm-hmm. I know, you know, myself better than anybody. But, like, I'm willing to cede that kind of decision-making power to somebody else inside my head just because I admire them so much. And I like the problems that we invent for ourselves because we can't deal with this other problem over here. Like. Okay. Her whole arc is, like, essentially, like, dealing with the fact that her daughter's going to be going away and, like, accepting, like, confrontation and conflict, like, with all of her, like I said earlier, her clients and such, that it's, like, and her relationship's going fine, but because, like you're saying, Matthew, this, like, woman who, for whatever reason, she values her perspective, like, plants these seeds in there, and she creates a problem when she could just as easily ignore what she's saying. Right. The other thing that's interesting that you bring up, um, you know, professions and what, you know, what they do for a living, because it's, uh, I think Nicole Holofcener sometimes has her characters sort of have these jobs that require this sort of like professional level of intimacy where, you know, Eva's a masseuse, so she has these 
occasionally, you know, she's, you know, her job requires this kind of physical intimacy with people. Rebecca Hall's character in Please Give, ha- having the job of being the, um, the mammogram tech yeah. in that movie, I feel like has a similar thing where it's just sort of like you are, your job is to have this level of intimacy with somebody that they're allowing you to do for this sort of, you know, purpose, but it, it requires something of you, some sort of like, you know, interaction from you. And either you, you see a character be very good at that kind of thing. Or in this case, you see Eva like totally checked out while like Jessica St. Clair is going on and on and on and on about her problems, which by the way, perfect. The great Jessica St. Clair. You barely ever see her face in this movie, but like, you can like totally tell it's her. It's, and yes. Um, but I love that, that just like she, Eva couldn't be farther away while she is sort of having this like increased level of, you know, intimacy with somebody because of her job. It's very interesting. Can we talk about original screenplay this year? Yeah. Because like, this is a perfect case. This is a perfect example of like, uh, this type of movie, not getting the kind of credit that it deserves for what it's doing, because I would say this original screenplay lineup fully blows. Let's hear it. Um, her is the winner. It's probably the only one that I would nominate. I do like that movie. I like that Spike um, Jones has an Oscar. That was a good moment. Yeah. American Hustle is nominated, which I am an American Hustle defender, but I still would not like whatever. That's fine. Um, Blue Jasmine for Woody Allen, which like, okay, sure, it's original, but like maybe we should have been calling that out as being basically a streetcar named Desire adaptation. Right. I don't know. Right. Right. Um, also, also, it's Woody Allen. We've given him enough throughout the years. Right. Nobody like it's not about that screenplay. It was about her, the acting in that movie and whatever. Yeah. And then Dallas Buyers Club, which was surging at the time of nomination. So like that makes sense. But like that movie doesn't need a screenplay nomination. And then Nebraska, which I fully hate. <laughs> Dallas Buyers Club is one of those movies that I'm so incredulous as to how it's an original work just because it's based on a real person. And I'm just like, there wasn't a magazine article. There wasn't a book. Like you didn't get this from anything. Like, I don't understand how, and I know there are rules about like what constitutes, you know, Same true for American hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I know there has to be some sort of like specifically previously published thing, but like, clearly this is based enough on, you know, Right. Some sort of origin. I guess if like your research materials are varied and widespread enough that it that it doesn't count as adapting any one thing and like that I guess makes sense. But Well that's even why the the Joker adapted is so weird, because it's just like yes. adapted from a character that exists in comics, but the story is completely you know it's just so it's such a weird And it's also a taxi driver ripoff beyond that and like that right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wish original screenplay would be more movies like her or even like i know you said you you really hate nebraska but that's at least the kind of thing i want to see nominated right where it's just like it's an original idea it sort of you know comes up from scratch and and i think if that were the case more often i think you would see somebody like nicole hollisiener have more awards to her name mm-hmm. it's also worth noting that 
maybe part of the reason why they couldn't get this movie an original screenplay nomination or one for James Gandolfini. Um, this is the year that Fox Searchlight had 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. That they put like the f- all of their energy behind. Um, and I mean, it obviously paid off too but like we see that all the time i mean we just saw it this past year with what neon's doing on a much smaller scale because they have way less money than fox searchlight has where it's like the uh, there is less when you are going for as much as you can get for a certain movie other movies can fall by the wayside within a single distributor yeah, I think there's there's that thing of, you know, there are only so many resources to go around. But also, if you look at the other movies that Fox Searchlight had in 2013, their big Sundance play was um, The Way, Way Back, which was, speaking of, we were talking about um, Downhill. Were we talking about that on mic or off mic? We were talking about Downhill. We talked about it off mic. This is the week that Downhill opens. Yes. Yes. So Julie Louis-Dreyfus, Will Ferrell in the remake of Force Majeure. I think all three of us are kind of trepidatious about what this American remake is going to end up you know, being like we're all it, uh, and the Sundance premiere is either today or tomorrow. So like we we will we have reactions this. to the movie by the time. That, yeah. But yeah. written by an Academy Award winner. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Wait, who are we talking about for another Alexander Payne movie? I hate. Oh, yeah. right. So that's the thing. So that was what I was going to bring up is Nat Faxon and Jim Rash, who uh, did the screenplay for the the descendants has won the oscar for the descendants then made the way way back in 2013 about um god there's all these people that we were talking about right Allison Janney's in that Tony Collette's in Steve that Brown, and Steve Steve mm-hmm. Brown, Tony Collette yeah it's like yeah, yeah. Sam Rockwell the whole it's like a post a little bit sunshine hangover film like, <laughs> yeah entirely basically. it's little miss sunshine goes on vacation but so much less likable to me, at least. I really, yeah. I did not dig this. But I think this, the reaction at Sundance was, oh, this could be the little film that could. It's one of those things where people react at Sundance, not in the way that they think, but in this sort of like cynical way that like, oh, people are going to really go mm-hmm. for this. And I always think that's where people at Sundance trip up. That's where they tripped up with me and Earl and the Dying Girl. And sometimes it's just like, just tell me if you liked it or not. And that's kind of what I want to just go with. Um, and The Way Way Back was one of those movies that I think people were just like, ah, yeah, you know, the, the little SOBs down in America will really fall for this one. And they didn't. But I think for a while, Fox Searchlight held on to this idea that The Way Way Back was going to be their other their other awards player. They'll have, you know, the, obviously the major, the major play was always going to be 12 Years a Slave, certainly once it started screening at festivals. But I think it took a while for them to transition from the way way back to enough said as like the b option and i think maybe because of that it only gets the one golden globe nomination where you could have obviously seen enough said getting a best picture in a comedy although that was the year that like best picture in a comedy at the globes was like all semi dramas that were going to get oscar nominations for best picture so like i don't know it was like her like her, like American Hustle, like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, that great comedy, The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I think Wolf of Wall Street's a comedy. I know, but I hate it, so whatever. Um, Nebraska is the same thing. Inside Lewin Davis was the other nominee, and that's a musical. And they're comedies, but they're these sort of, like, auteur comedies where it's just, like, it's not just, like, you know, here, let's all have a good time. It's just, like, let's all think about the absurdity of life kind of a thing. Well, um, you know what? 
I was so I, I don't mean to make this now a Golden Globes discussion, but no, I you should. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine was talking about. First of all, I I love the Golden Globes. I think the Golden Globes do not have. People think the Golden Globes have anti taste. I think they just have a like a different taste, but it's a very valid taste. I agree with you. It's like eighty agree. people making this vote versus the Academy. That's like seven thousand. Like, of right. course, they're going to be more prone to that type of thing. And you know, they were talking about oh, you know, the nomin the like. The nominations for, especially for comedy, like the Golden Globes a long time ago, they just used to be so bad. And I'm like, no, they were never bad. They actually allowed comedy, like straight up comedy films yep. to get awards. Yep. And you think it's bad because you can point to 1993 and say, okay, Mrs. Doubtfire won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy. But That's good, like, I think. Honestly, I think yeah. that's a point right. in its favor. Right, exactly. Like, I, I don't need dramas that have four laughs in them competing in comedy because they want to get awards attention right i would rather that straight up comedies were seen as quality films and got golden globe i almost wish we could go back to the 90s kind of golden globe lineups where we were getting like whatever was actually like the funniest movies those year were, were being nominated and rewarded i do feel like we should be able to elect somebody as like golden globes commissioner who is going to be like a real hardliner when it comes to both genre and lead supporting distinctions and just like really lay down the law and don't let the studios just walk all over them and like really be like, you know what, this rides the line between comedy and drama, but I'm going to like, I'm going to have my standards and it's going to be this. And I think also have that process be as transparent as possible. And it would be riveting, like watching, like that's what they should have as like, you know, a YouTube streaming special instead of putting the Oscar nominations on YouTube. Just like let us watch the deliberations over Golden Globe <laughs> genre distinctions. I would be like it's a Senate hearing. Yes. Oh my God. I would love it. But yes. um I think that's a fantastic I think that's a fantastic point pertaining to this year especially. And I think the one little oasis of that in 2013 was Best Actress in a Comedy, which had mm-hmm the most surprising because when you think of golden globe nominations i think people and i often do this too think oh the golden globes are going to go for the glitziest people the biggest sort of like a-list stars you know that they can get so they can get a room full of them all sort of like drunk and giving reaction shots or whatever and we all love that um which i think is why i was so surprised when that year they nominated i mean amy adams in american hustle who won which like makes sense american hustle was a big huge hit for oscars that year that was always going to happen meryl in august osage county is another one and again we can talk about comedy that movie being distinguished as a comedy (laughs) (laughs) i mean on the stage it is a very funny show but like it it, that is just weinstein jockeying okay i would say i think august osage county is as much of a comedy as the wolf of wall street though i do i like i think sure okay i mean like i i can track with that logic but like it doesn't seem like they they were being genuine in that choice that feels like a strategic campaign choice. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Right. And I think anytime, so many of these Anytime there's a dramedy, almost anytime there's a dramedy, that's going to happen where they're going to be like, well, we'll go comedy because it feels like the easier route to get a win in. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore actually denigrating what it means to work on a comedy script and actually yeah. work for the comedy. But I, you think, know? I think that was one of the major, like, pr- 
bad decisions that like the marriage story campaign made, for example, whereas like if that had been in Globe's comedy. Yeah, I think some things would be different. But I think in 2013, you look at the other three actresses in that category. It's Julie Delpy for Before Midnight, Greta Gerwig for Frances Ha, and Julie Louis-Dreyfus for Enough Said. And with the exception of maybe Julie Louis-Dreyfus, because she was also a nominee in television that year, and the Globes do love to do that one nomination for movies and one for television. Like, remember Mm -hmm. that year Jamie Foxx got three nominations? Where it was like Ray and Collateral and also that one TV movie that he did, and it was just like weird just fucking love jamie fox um, i think sag did the same if i'm yeah. correct if i'm remembering correctly but i was floored that like julie delpy and greta gerwig who seems like such independent spirit award nominees the fact that the globes nominated greta gerwig for francis ha and the spirits didn't will never stop blowing me away i will always bring that up because it's wild to me because it's completely the opposite of what you might expect nobody at this point nobody knew who greta gerwig was she was this sort of like mumblecore actress right yeah francis ha was this like very like critics pick but it wasn't on that like you know mainstreamy glitz and glam level that the golden globes usually go for so i kind of loved the way that that category shook out and even if ultimately you know delpy doesn't win gerwig doesn't win julia louis dreyfus doesn't win but that was cool i don't know i thought that was super cool i agree i also agree thank you <laughs> thank you see this is the kind of thing that we should get a committee for for uh for the Golden Globe. So we have They can just hire you. They can just hire me. That's all I ask. See, thank you. Chris knows what really I'm asking. When I say they should have a commissioner, I mean I should be the commissioner. So yeah. um anything else we want to talk about? Um once again the AARP movies for grown ups awards yeah. were on the right side of history and handed this movie four nominations. This is the perfect AARP movies for grown ups award, right? Where it's like yes. it's you know, it's about soon to be empty nesters it's about finding love sort of you know at middle age it is very it is a movie about a romance that doesn't need to like glitz and glam it up with anything anything special they don't need to hang any like ornaments on it or whatever it is just a simple grown-up love story it is perfect also they nominated nicole hall center for best director which again Who's better at recognizing women filmmakers, the Oscars or the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards? That is all. That is answered again and again. The AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. What were the other nominations that year in terms of for best grown-up love story? Yes, can you read those out? Uh, enough said. One. Uh, it was also nominated with Before Midnight, Lee Daniels the Butler, and two movies I have never heard of before: Still Mine and Unfinished Song. Have never heard of either one of those either. Who are the couples in both of those movies? Still Mine is an actress named Genevieve Bujold and James Cromwell. Genevieve Bujold was a a best actress nominee in like the 60s or 70s or whatever. She always comes up on those sporkle quizzes when I try to name all the best actress nominees. Um, Unfinished Song was between Terrence Stamp and Vanessa Redgrave. Ooh, okay. And uh, so, song, so Unfinished Song was released in the U.S. as Unfinished Song, elsewhere known as Song for Marion. And it was 
Oh, it was nominated not at the BAFTAs, at the British Independent Film Awards. Excuse me. It's an independent oh, British film. Oh, interesting. Interesting. But elsewhere known as Song for Marion. Lee Daniels, the butler, as a nominee in that category is phenomenally fantastic because it lets me also remember that, like, we almost nominated, we almost got Oprah as an Oscar nominee for the butler. Again. Again, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was just texting Kevin about this, that I still to this day can't believe that Oprah did, that we did not pull that off for Oprah. If that, that movie didn't come out say, in I'm August, not gonna say that Oprah didn't absolutely would have happened. Pull it off for Oprah. That woman if that backhanded had been a fall release. That woman backhanded Yaya for all of us, and yes. we didn't do anything for her in return. Everything she had was because of that butler. <laughs> 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 she also called Yaya a trifling woman or something like that. It was so that scene was so perfect. She showed I remember, no, I remember the first I remember the first production shot that came out and you know it's that shot of Oprah with her with the wig and the cigarette. Yes. And you could smell the Oscar buzz off of that production <laughs> shot of her looking at the TV with her cigarette cuz it was very much going for almost like a Monique vibe, you know, uh-huh. like Yes. The shot that was released was very much like she is playing that motherly role. Here's her cigarette. Here's her wig. Well, type. and it was right. It was Oprah playing against type, right? Because she was this sort of, right. you know, she was selfish and she was, you know, materialistic and all this sort of stuff. And she wasn't always the person who was right in every scene that she was in. And again, slapping America's <laughs> Next Top Model contestants. And it was like, <laughs> Showing Yaya no respeto whatsoever. <laughs> I love Yaya. I love you so much. Oh my god. She Yaya, Yaya might be the first uh, ANTM contestant to win an Oscar one day. <gasps> I hope so. I truly oh god, hope so. I hope we get several of those. <laughs> you know who is the best actress in the history of America's Next Top Model? Just from Top Model. Like, not anybody who's done any other work. Can we talk about Jade for just yes, a second? Of My favorite yes. reality television personality ever. Wait, there the will never lady? be anyone who is better TV than Jade. Chris Matthew, are you both? Wow, Chris Matthews, that's so funny. The both of you together. <laughs> By your powers combined, you could run MSNBC. Um, <laughs> are you guys ready for the IMDb game? I am. Yeah. Chris. So every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says that they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. That's not enough. It just becomes a free-for-all of hints. It's the IMDb game. I'm very excited. So we're going to go, when, as we always do when we have a guest on, we'll do a round-robin style where we'll... Um you know challenge each other in a circle so matthew would you like to challenge chris or me i will challenge you joe okay so then i will challenge chris and chris will challenge you and so next then you decide do you want to guess first give first or observe first i will i'll give first okay so you give me the performer that you have chosen, and I will try and guess. So I hope you have not done her before, but uh, I was thinking of Tony Collette, and then I was thinking of Tony Collette co-stars, and that game brought me to Abigail Breslin. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, are there any television or voice 
works. No, they are all feature films. All right. Abigail Breslin. Well, one of them's got to be Little Miss Sunshine. That is correct. I love, by the way, just thinking about Toni Collette in the context of Little Miss Sunshine, again, just makes me think of her chewing that popsicle with frantic Oh energy, my god. Which yes. is one of my favorite things that I've ever seen her do in a movie. Uh, <laughs> Alright. So, there's that. So, I guess Zombieland is probably one of them? It is not. <gasps> wow. Frank, well, I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, uh, what else is Abigail Breslin done? Signs. That is correct. I thought that would be the hard one. Signs yes. shows up for kind of everyone. I also watched it on TV just last week. So, um, uh, it showed up right the last episode, right when you gave me Merritt Weaver. Yes, yes, it's it's even there for Merritt Weaver. Signs will show up. Merritt on an Weaver IMDb. is in Signs for one scene. She plays like a clerk at a store. Yes, it's crazy. <laughs> wow. Um, also, well, I was I gotta, watching I Signs. Go. Last weekend, and I tweeted some dumb little joke about how um, Mel Gibson's character is a chump for going back to God at the end because doesn't he know that it was God who sent the aliens in the first place? And <laughs> um, Rachel Bloom favored it and di- yes. died. I'm just going to brag about that for everybody because it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. To Does me. she follow you? Yes, apparently. Oh, okay. Oh, I don't know why. Rachel, we love I you. I was wondering if she had like a tweet deck open for signs. That would be even more amazing, <laughs> first of all. Um, no, I have no idea why she follows me. It's the greatest thing. I loved it so much. Anyway, so, okay, so signs and Little Miss Sunshine is one of them. You still have a wrong guess, Joe, before you get the years. I know. Is one of them Ender's Game? No, it is not. Okay, so give me the years of the two that are. Ah! Okay, the other two years are your favorite year, 2013, <laughs> oh, okay. and 2008. 2013 has got to be August Osage County. Yes. August and- Osage County is, again, as pointed out by former guest Cameron Sheets, one of the movies that... Everybody. All of the people on the poster, yeah. it shows up in their eye. And then what did you yeah. say the other one was? 2008. Okay. So two years after Little Miss Sunshine, people said, hey, that Abigail Breslin's pretty cool. Let's put her in something. And that something was... Huh. Um... We'll say she is one of four women on this poster, but oh. like... No. I almost said The Secret Life of Bees because Secret Life of Bees is also on everybody's IMDb. Um, That's Dakota Fanning. That was Dakota Fanning. Four women. Four women. Crossroads in their But this is a movie about the dude and the dude's on the poster too. Oh, is it Definitely Maybe? Yes. Okay. I forgot that she was the kid in Definitely Maybe. Yay, good one. Okay, that was very satisfying to have gotten that one. (laughs) Nice. Call me Definitely Maybe. Yes, call me Definitely Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The mashup we always needed. Definitely Maybe was definitely going, was definitely maybe going for like love, comma, actually vibes with that poster. Because there's a comma in Definitely Maybe. Oh, yeah. And all of the faces are like, from different directions. Yeah. Definitely maybe is Rachel Weiss, Elizabeth Banks, and Isla Fisher, right? Those are the three ladies? Correct. Yeah, yeah and actually, the poster for Love actually also has those, like, it's vivisected, like, the American flag, like, stripes, the same way oh. the Definitely Maybe poster is. Interesting. 
All right, Chris, I am giving to you. I decided to go back into my beloved Walking and Talking, and okay. we talked a lot about Catherine Keener in this episode, who I didn't mention, which is crazy because I always seem to mention her, was the other woman in that movie who is Anne Heche, my beloved <gasps> Anne Heche, Celestia herself. Love Miss Anne Heche. Uh, one of my favorite actresses of all time. I think she's so incredibly talented. Uh, what are the known for for Anne Heche? All movies. And there's no television. Not a speck of TV. <laughs> no men in uh, trees for you. Hmm. Hmm. Wag the dog. Correct. Cause she was she Globe nominated for that. No, but she got something for that. I'll look that. She up. got something for that. She got something for Donnie Brasco. So Donnie Brasco. Uh yes, Donnie Brasco is correct. How about six days, seven nights? That is also correct. Wow, you are three for three. You are always I... infuriatingly so good at this. Can I just say uh, something before we go on? Yes. Yes. She won the National Board of Review for Best Supporting Actress for both Donnie Brasco and uh-huh. I literally just looked so that up. Yes, yes. I, I was conflating them. Together. That was during for that eight. era where National Board of Review could not resist giving a supporting award to somebody who was great in like four movies that year. <laughs> they did that for Julianne Moore, I'm pretty sure. I think they did that for Philip Seymour Hoffman one year. But yes. Mm, interesting. She was also um, okay, nominated so for I, Wag uh, the Dog, Chris, by your beloved Golden Satellites, just so you know. Yes, yes. The people who nominate movies, they don't see. <laughs> um, All right, so you're three for three. Okay, I am of several minds here of what this could possibly be. None of them did she get awards for, so I can't imagine that they would be there, and none of them are as big as Six Days, Seven Nights people kind of forget that she's in birth, even though she's great in birth. So I don't think it's that. I'm going to say the Psycho remake. No. One strike. Okay. Volcano, then. Two strikes. She is fucking great in Volcano, though. I will say uh, that. Can we talk about the... Have you ever seen the, like, promo photo shoot for Volcano? Where she's, like, posing with Tommy Lee Jones and all of these weird different poses. No. That, like, human beings just don't stand that way. Look up those photos of her and Tommy Lee Jones for no. Volcano. Oh, my God. All right, I'll have to. Um, um, what's my year? Your year is... 2002. Mm, that sucks. I am not going to remember what the hell that would have been. Um, mm. It's before birth. It is before After birth. Psycho. Yeah. Actually, this would have been during a really interesting era for her because the whole Celestia thing happened the year before. That, that book... Um, <laughs> Uh, that she wrote about all of that stuff because that I remember being like the front page hot button news item like the week leading up to 9-11. That was one of those things where like, remember the things we cared about before this happened and we got serious again and it was all just like, how could we have cared about Anne Heche and Celestia? Um, I feel like the only thing we stayed caring about when 9-11 happened, at least like pop culture wise, was glitter bombing. Yeah, <laughs> let me let me clarify what I'm saying. Not, not throwing the, glitter on people. I was gonna say not the, the action film of glitter bombing. Glitter 
bombing at the box office. Correct. Like that was the only thing that it was just like everybody was in this massive depression. It's the only thing that could shake awful. us out of it. Yeah. And it's well, like and you could just like sit there so dejected and it's like, oh my god. Well the two albums that came out on nine eleven were Jay Z's The Blueprint Volume Two and the, the Glitter, Glitter Soundtrack. <laughs> <It's amazing. Yep. laughs> All right. So okay, we're talking about the year I, I, after. I'm, I'm stalling because I can't remember. I'm going to need more hints. Okay. So she's not the star of this movie. The star of this movie is like a major, major star and Oscar winner. She plays oh. something of an antagonist where he, the the major star is railing against the system, and she's sort of the person who represents the system um, in this respect. Was this an Oscar movie? Um, <laughs> no, it was not. No. It's uh yeah, it's popcorn but, fair with Oscary people. Yes, gotcha. I think that's a good way to put it. Okay, so it's like a, it's like a, a is it a social like justice movie? Is it a courtroom drama? No, you said, but you're on the right track. It's, it's yeah. There is there I would are say issues the themes, of justice. And I would say the themes of this film are even more resonant today. Yes, that is absolutely true. What is, is a major uh, major campaign issue today? Climate change? No. <laughs> I wish it was. What's like dominated all the debates? Healthcare? Yes. Yes. Okay, it's a healthcare movie. And the affordability of healthcare. From 2002. With a big Oscar star. Yes. Perhaps this person has won two Oscars. Is it John Q? It's John yes. Q. Yes. John Q is fully displaced in time for me. I could not tell you when that came Can out. Can I read to you the entire cast list of John Q? Please. Denzel Washington, Robert Duvall, James Woods, Anne Haish, Eddie Griffin, Kimberly Elise, Sean Hattesey, and Ray Liotta. Justice for Kimberly Elise. Justice for time. anybody who had to appear on set with James Woods. Um, yeah, like crazy to me, and they are both—they're like the two doctors in the movie who are like having to sort of like stonewall Denzel Washington. I can't. James Woods and Anne Hesh together on that movie is like there's so many times where I see that like Anne Hesh was in a movie with such and such, and I'm just like, how did that go? The fact that she made two movies with Vince Vaughn in the span of like a year in 1998 yeah. fascinates me fascinates me what the hell is going on there um laura herring is also in this movie laura herring from uh mulholland drive who i always sort of like perk up because i'm just like oh her again anyway that, that was one of those movies that had everyone and yet the only person you would know from it is denzel is because Den- yes. he was he was the it was you were going to see a denzel movie only yes and i think that's know? true of like a lot of denzel washington movies actually like it's very rare when we were talking about um fallen earlier that like that's why i couldn't remember details about anything else because really you only remember denzel right and, and weirdly <laughs> Sorry, i just i just dropped a candle oh well better I, oh! I thought... <laughs> Are you okay? Is everything yeah, fine? Yeah, it's not, not lit. It was okay. just... It's, it's a candle that's it's also... Celestia. It's truly... It's a candle that's also... Celestia like did it. It's all these books, though. Okay. All right, Chris. You all right, so Matthew, I have one for you. Um, you're a person. I came on this train because one of the ensemble members we did not talk about from Enough Said, and why would you, is Ben Falcone, who is notedly married to Melissa McCarthy. So for you, I have Melissa McCarthy. I almost did this. I said if I got if uh, I was going to oh. give to Matthew, I would give to Melissa McCarthy. So truly, you were fated to do this one. Wow. 
Wow. Okay, well, I'm going to guess Bridesmaids first. Correct. Okay. Um, and I'm going to guess Can You Ever Forgive Me, since it garnered her an Oscar nomination. No. No, okay. No. Okay. Um... Bridesmaids is, is her only Oscar nomination on her known for. Oh, is there is there any TV? There's no TV. Okay, so no Mike and Molly. No Gilmore uh, Girls. Nada. No Saturday Night the, Live. Like, Saturday Night Live is one that you think would show up for people sometimes, but it doesn't. Honestly, is one of them Identity Theft? No, Identity Thief is not on there either. Okay, so you're going to get years here. It's 2013, 2014, 2015. I mean, those make sense. Those are the years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I can't believe that I'm going to bomb this. Is it, um... What was the the Judd Apatow that she was in? Um, None of them are Judd Apatow movies. Uh, okay, well then, fuck that. Is one of them uh, St. Vincent? No, not St. Vincent. Okay, so these ones were all, like, box office hits. One, like... It, oh, for, Spy. For what it is, it spies uh, there, yes. Spy the Heat. The Heat, yes. And then the last one, like, it didn't make as much money as those movies, but, like, it still made a lot of money. It was also for- the movie that started the whole... Maybe Melissa McCarthy shouldn't work with this person. Oh, Tammy. There you go. Yes, it's yes. Tammy. <laughs> Directed by Ben Falco. I, yeah. I was I didn't want to say Tammy because I was like, I don't think it'll be Tammy. But then once you said don't work with this person, I was like, oh, it's Tammy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we all want um super intelligence to be good this year, but I don't think Oof. any of us think it's going to be because it is directed by Ben Falcone, who, yes. Coming soon to HBO Max. Yes. Guys, this um, was a very fun episode. It was. It was. Matthew, Matthew thank, you, so thank you so much for coming on. This was a true delight. Yes, thank oh, you for so making me for watch. Me. Yes, thank you for having me watch Enough Set again. I needed it in my life. I didn't even realize it. Um, good stuff. That is our episode. If you guys listening want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Matthew, where can our listeners find you out on the great wilds of the internet i'm at matthew rodriguez on twitter and as i would always say on a podcast i used to have that's matthew rodriguez with one t and a g and a z very good chris how about you uh, I am on Twitter at Christy File, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name, and writing regularly for the film experience. Excellent. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. You can also find me on Letterboxd with my name spelled, strangely enough, the exact same way. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so quit pushing that guac around and write something nice about us, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Oh, thank you. Thank you ever so much. I'm, uh... I'm so happy. Thank you. I...
I, uh, I have a television, so I'm going to spend some time here to tell you some things. And, and, and sir, you're doing a great job, but you're so quick with that stick, so why don't you sit? Because I may never be here again.